Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Chapter 11 begins with an extended narrative about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus performs his seventh and most dramatic sign in the Gospel of John. John narrates seven miracles, seven signs that Jesus does, and they all are building up to this climax point where Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, resurrects and gives life back to someone who has died. Um, Though Jesus receives word that Lazarus has fallen ill, he stays two more days where he is. Now, we know from later in the story that by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. If that's the case, then Lazarus was most likely already deceased by the time the word got to Jesus. Perhaps he knows that. But the bottom line is that Jesus is on his own timeline. And the timeline of the divine is not always the timeline of humanity. Jesus finally, after those two days, says, let's go back to Judea, because Judea would be where Bethany and Jerusalem are. Bethany is just outside Jerusalem, and that's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. It's dangerous for Jesus to go back to Judea. There's a plot to kill him. And his cryptic response, um, about 12 hours of daylight, is a little bit confusing. The disciples are a little confused. Sometimes the commands of God sound hard, hard to understand, but we should go ahead and act on them and trust. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the light. I'm I'm leading you in the right direction. Don't fear the path that lies before us. It's all going to happen like it's supposed to. And God doesn't lead us into darkness. Notice I didn't say he doesn't lead us into difficulty sometimes, but he doesn't lead us into darkness. He always leads us in a path that will bring light at the end. The disciples also misunderstand what he says about Lazarus. Lazarus is not sleeping. He has died. They still do not have ears to hear how Jesus communicates. Their spiritual ears are still not fully developed. In verse 16, we hear our first word from Thomas. Um, Thomas, the disciple who is also called Didymus or the twin. So he has a twin brother um, or twin, maybe a twin sister. We are never told. Soon we will know him as Doubting Thomas, which I've always thought was pretty sad that he's known for his worst moment and we don't have to be. Um, I hear his response is a little bit sarcastic, perhaps also bold, but he's like, all right, we're going to do this thing. We're going back to Judea. Woo! All right, let's all go to Jerusalem and die. Great. <laughs> In there. And he's not wrong. He's simply expressing out loud what they probably all felt. Verses 17 through 27, we see that Martha runs to meet him before he's actually arrived. Yet Mary stays at the house. Typical to a grieving community, others have come to sit with the family. They've joined to gather them in mourning. So they have people in the house. And Martha, who's already been called out earlier in the story, although not in John's gospel, for wanting to be hospitable when she should have been learning or at least resenting 
Mary sitting and learning instead of helping her be a good hostess. Now she leaves those mourners without a second thought. She doesn't care if she's being hospitable or not. She has a need. She needs God. She's going to Jesus. I don't care. They can get their own drink. I'm going to see Jesus. Uh, Jesus tells her that Lazarus will rise, and she affirms that she knows and believes this. She has faith, but she also has sorrow. She's grieving. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah. She believes his message, but believing in a healing Messiah is a very different thing from believing that someone can be resurrected and brought back from the dead. Verses 28 through 37, Jesus now asks about Mary. It sounds to me like Mary might have been a little more hurt by Jesus not coming when they called him. So she didn't run out to meet him, but she does go as soon as he asks for her. And the mourners this time follow her. Mary was, Martha was able to slip away unnoticed, or at least she wasn't followed, but Mary now is. So there's going to be a crowd for what happens. In verse 35, it says that Jesus cries. Now, there are two times in the English scriptures where it says that Jesus weeps. The one here is from the Greek verb dakruo which means to shed visible tears silently. So he's crying. There are tears. Picture him with tears streaming down his face. He is crying, but silently. Now, in Luke chapter 19 is the other place where it says Jesus weeps, and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. This is from the Greek verb kleio, um, and it means to weep audibly, to cry as a child. So in Luke 19, picture him sobbing audibly, but here it's just tears streaming down his face. He sees how much they are hurting and how deep the sorrow is. There's also been the suggestion that he also knows what he's asking Lazarus to come back from. Um, Lazarus has passed from this life into the life after, and he's asking him to come back and uh, live a human life for longer. Verses 38 through 44, we arrive at the burial cave. This was the very common way to bury people was in a cave. You would have a family crypt, a family cave, and you would roll a stone in front of the door and you would bury multiple members of your family there because after about two years, the body had decomposed. You would sweep up the bones and put it in a box called an ossuary and you would then have the slab to bury the next person in the family who died. And so we get a description here of a cave with a stone rolled in front of it that should remind us very much of the one that Jesus will be placed in before long. He tells them to take the stone away, and the sisters protest. Um, It's too late to save him, Um, and it's too soon to be reopening this tomb. Right now, where we are is in the gross part of the burial process, like the decay has already started, um, but it's not complete. And so they protest, but Jesus has them open it anyway. And Jesus prays audibly for the benefit of the crowd. He wants them to hear and know the things that he is praying and saying. Um, Lazarus does come out, still all wrapped up in the burial wrappings. And Jesus says to unbind him and let him go. This has meaning not just for Lazarus, but also for us. We are all unbound and set free from the power of death because of what Jesus does and has done for us. Verses 45 through 57, word spreads of this miracle that has happened. It's not clear if 
It's simply being talked about because it's a miraculous, incredible thing that would be talked about. And some of the chief priests and Pharisees are simply around when those conversations are happening, or if some of the people went to tattle to them, we don't know. They have a legitimate fear of Roman reprisal. Romans didn't like rebellion, and they tended to stamp it out, and they tended to just kill everybody who might have been involved. They don't care if they get some innocent people, just the rebellion is not to be tolerated. But we also know that they have a deep fear of the loss of their religious status quo and of their power. Caiaphas, the high priest, then suggests that Jesus, it'd be better for Jesus to die than for a whole bunch of them to die when Roman comes to fix this problem. He's being pretty prophetic right here because Jesus will, in fact, die for all the people. This also means that Jesus can no longer go about openly. The plot to kill him has become so pervasive, he needs to remove himself from this for a while. So he goes to Ephraim. Ephraim is about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's a wild, uncultivated hillside area. It'd be a great area to get away for a little while when you don't want to be found. In the Bible, it's also called Ophrah or Oprah, uh, Joshua chapter 18, verse 23, and Ephron in 2 Chronicles 13, 19. Today, it is the modern city of um, Tabi. Um, it's a Palestinian Christian settlement. In verse 55, we know that this is around the time of the Passover, one of the three pilgrimage festivals where all able-bodied adult males um, travel to Jerusalem for the festival. Everyone, of course, is looking for him. Some of them want to meet this celebrity person who can do these miracles. Some want to see more miracles. Um, Some want to kill him. So we have different reasons for seeking Jesus. Chapter 12 has us back in Bethany a little city just outside of Jerusalem, Um, small town, think of it like a suburb. And there's a dinner party going on at Lazarus' home. Lazarus would have become a celebrity because of his resurrection. Uh, Martha is serving again in the role that she's so comfortable with. And Mary comes and anoints Jesus' feet. Anointing was a very common practice. It happened um, of dignitary, dignitaries, royals, um, those kinds of things. The anointing of an anointing of Jesus is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, but they may not all speak of the same event. It's mentioned in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and here. Um, here it is Holy Week. Um, in some of the stories, it's in the home of Simon the leper. Um, but in Luke, in Luke chapter 7, it takes place in the home of a Pharisee named Simon, and the woman who anoints his feet is identified as a sinner woman um, there, and they're doing ministry up in the area of Nain and Capernaum, which is in north of Judea in the region of Galilee. So that may be a different anointing. Um, Tom, it's quite possible that this has happened multiple times because Jesus is seen, even by those who don't recognize him as the Messiah, as a prophet, as an important person there. But this is an anointing um, for his burial. This is how the ancients prepared the body of a king for burial, was with very expensive perfumes um, and extensive rituals. Nard is a very expensive perfume. It was imported from the Himalayas, and the price given here is the equivalent of about 10 months worth of wages. That's a lot of money, in my opinion. 
We also hear about Judas, the betrayer, who objects to spending such elaborate means on this. And John reveals Judas to us to be a thief. He skims money out of the common purse that's supposed to take care of all of them on their travels. We see that Judas has a money-centric mindset. That's part of what will make him susceptible to the 30 pieces of silver that he gets offered to betray Jesus. I don't think it was his whole motivation, but it is certainly part of it. Verse 18 is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. This is not an admonition to ignore the poor, to never take care of the poor. It is to draw attention to the uniqueness of this moment. We should take care of the poor. There will always be poor as long as the world is imperfect. Um, and we need to be caring for them. But that doesn't mean that we can't recognize extraordinary moments as well. Verses 9 through 11, the crowd comes to get Jesus and Lazarus um, They want to cover up this resurrection so that they can regain power. So how do you do that? You eliminate the person who's been resurrected. If he's dead, then there's no resurrected person, and you can deny that he was ever resurrected. Um, This idea of deserting that it mentions here shows that they've drawn sides. Um, those, Those who are testifying to Jesus need to be silenced as well. Lazarus has become a great proclaimer of what Jesus can do, of what God can do through Jesus, and they need to silence that. Verses 12 through 19 are what we know as the triumphal entry. They spread palms, um, and they wave them. Think about it like we would wave pom-poms at a sporting event today. Palms were a symbol of victory and of the peace that comes with victory. The donkey is an animal of peace. The stallion or a horse was a, a animal of war, but a donkey is what a, a king rides in times of peace. They're shouting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, and Hosanna means save us, save us now. Um, Passover remembered when God had saved them, when he saved them in Egypt, and it becomes a prayer for God to do it again. Rebellion sentiments ran very high at the time of Passover. That's one of the reasons that Rome watched very carefully during the time of Passover. It's why some of the dignitaries who are present for Jesus' trial are in the area is because they've come during the time of Passover, not only to partake of the festival from the fringes, but also to make sure things don't get out of control. Um, And these kinds of things, Hosanna was always shouted for a king or a victor. So they are most definitely um, lauding him as someone important. Um, They are recognizing he's a key figure. And in their estimation, for most of them, they are hoping he's the Messiah. They just don't understand fully what Messiah looks like. And I have to make one more plug for the fact that Everyone gets involved here. Adults are waving palm branches. One of my pet peeves is that we reduce this to something the children do to perform for us on Palm Sunday, but we all ought to wave our palms and shout Hosanna. Okay. There's a very odd um, Daniel prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses um, 25 and 26, I think. Um, Daniel says that the arrival of the promised one would come, and then that promised one would be cut off, um, which could refer to Jesus' crucifixion. 
And if you calculate it the way Daniel does in in that book, there are 173,880 days um, from from his marking of this prophecy to the time it's supposed to be fulfilled. And that is exactly what we find if we mark it from the decree of Artaxerxes um, to Nehemiah that he could go home and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that happens in the book of Nehemiah to March the 30th, A.D. 33, the time of Passover, which is the Monday before Passover. So the timeline fits exactly in the minds of some from Daniel's prophecy, seeing it fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, Um, But understanding the significance of who Jesus is is simply not possible until after his resurrection. The disciples are going to remember this moment and see it for what it is only after Jesus has been resurrected. Hindsight is often twenty twenty. We're not able to see it when we're in the moment. Verses 20 through 26, Jesus speaks about his death. He talks about a grain of wheat. Um, it's only a single grain as long as it's a grain. But until it gets planted and dies and goes into the soil, then it can become many grains. It gives birth to much. Um, Jesus is talking about how he lives and how we're to live. This is a dying to self. It is a self-giving love that he is modeling for us and that he calls us to as well. Bethsaida is mentioned here, Bethsaida in Galilee. There were two Bethsaidas. This one is close to Capernaum. Um, Think about it in terms of like Anniston and Oxford and the way they blend into one another. Bethsaida in Galilee was close to Capernaum, their home base. Earlier, we have said that Philip is from the same city as Andrew and Simon, which we know to be Capernaum. So that's why both of those things can be true. It's possible. Philip is a Greek name. Um, he is a, a Hebrew. He is Jewish, but his parents, for some reason, have given him Greek names. Perhaps these Greeks go to the one with the Greek name hoping they'll have a better chance of seeing him. So we have to ask ourselves why they chose Philip. Um, The name Philip just means horse lover. So maybe his parents helped take care of horses and he grew up loving and taking care of them. Um, They may have provided those horses to the Roman army. We we don't know um, why he has this particular name. It's interesting to me that Philip doesn't just take them to Jesus. He doesn't even just go directly to Jesus and ask if he'll see these. He goes to Simon, and it makes me wonder why. Does he have some hesitation about it? Jesus has said he's only called to the the house of Israel. He, When he sent them out earlier to try their hand at missionary work, he sends them only to the house of Israel. Um, we know that changes at, with his death and resurrection. But there does appear to be some sort of authority structure within the disciples that Philip goes to someone else rather than going directly to Jesus with this. The Greeks that are mentioned here are probably what we would call proselytes. They are practicing the Jewish faith and are in the process of converting to Judaism, but the conversion is not complete. This would be pre-circumcision for them. Verses 27 through 36, Jesus acknowledges the difficulty of the path that he is walking, but he's committed to this path. Um, And God the Father replies audibly. Some only hear a sound like thunder, 
Others are able to hear a voice, but not discern what it says. So the more open our spiritual ears are, the better we can hear the voice of God um, in there. So we see that some are a little further along their spiritual maturity journey than others. He speaks of his death as a judgment on humanity, as the defeat of Satan, who's ruler of this world, and as a magnetic force that will draw people to God. It will draw those who want a world that is as God intends the world to be. The crowd misunderstands um, The Messiah to them is supposed to remain, is supposed to establish a dynasty. So death is not part of their idea of a Messiah. And so they just can't understand it. Verses 36 through 43, Jesus urges them to awaken their spiritual eyes. Um, There's a fulfilling here of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10 and 53, verse 1, that they they can't see. They can't hear. They can't understand. Again, some believe, but they're not willing to say that they believe because they're they're afraid. They're afraid of reprisal. And John, once again, urges people not to have fear, but to be bold in our Christian testimony. Verses 44 through 50 are a good summary of the first half of the Gospel of John. Jesus is on mission from God to save, not to judge. Judgment will come. Um, and those who reject Jesus and the life that he calls us to lead are actually judging themselves. Um, they're making their choice and their decision. Okay. Um, as we move into chapter 13, we move into a second major portion of the Gospel of John. Chapter 13, verse 1 through chapter 19, verse 42 are going to give us the death narrative. Um, Chapters 13 through 17 all are going to focus on this final meal, a final Passover. There's a lot of space devoted to this. And in here, Jesus is also going to give his final discourse, his final teaching section there. And then we'll have two chapters that will narrate his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. In verses 1 through 20 of chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He shows a servant leadership mindset. Judas is said here to be the son of Simon Iscariot, and he's singled out several times in this passage. The betrayer is coming. This is not a sudden decision that Judas makes. This is premeditated betrayal. Simon Peter objects to Jesus washing his feet. The washing of people's feet as they came in usually happened as they entered a house, and it would be something that the lowest of the servants in the house would be responsible for doing. There, um, People would bathe regularly, and then after that, they only had to wash their feet because wearing the sandals and walking everywhere they went, their feet would get dirty. And so you would wash your feet more often than you bathed your whole body. And so Jesus says here, if if you've You've been cleansed. Now it's only your feet that have to keep being washed. They would also wash their hands, by the way. Um, So Jesus has cleansed us because of what he's done and our coming into relationship. But we still need to wash our feet to tidy up. And we do that by prayer and repentance. This foot washing is what is later symbolized um, with our baptism, the washing away, the cleansing of us from sin. And He makes a reference here to both Lord and teacher. 
a Lord, when they call him Lord, they're calling him master or someone who has a higher status over them and teacher um, being how they were learning. So masters were be to be obeyed. Teachers were to be imitated. So both apply here. The bottom line is do as Jesus did, do as he tells us to do. Verses 21 through 30, he foretells his betrayal. They all wonder who's going to do this. Um, and it tells me that they only remembered all these things about Judas much later, because when Jesus says someone's going to betray him, they don't all just turn and look at Judas. Like they don't realize it's him at this point. They would just wonder who. The disciple that Jesus loved is John. Um, whom we credit as the author of this gospel. They are reclining at the table, which was the common way of taking meals at the time. You're on a, a little couch or pallet, reclining on one elbow, usually your left elbow, because that was um, your dishonored hand. You did things with your right hand. And their feet would be away from the table, their heads toward the table, usually at a slant. And so John is to Jesus' right. So he's there his back would have been to Jesus' chest on there. That's the way they would have been. And Simon Peter urges John, hey, hey, you're right there by him. Ask him who it is. And Jesus tells him. Jesus tells him it's Judas. No one else hears what Jesus says to Judas when he tells him to go and do this quickly. That makes me think that Judas is probably on the other side of Jesus. So is to Jesus' left. So it would have been easy to dip the bread, hand it to Judas, and then whisper to him without others hearing there. Verse 30, Judas immediately gets up and leaves, and he goes out into the night. And then John calling it night here indicates both the time of the day, as well as the condition of Judas' soul. Um, He's gone out into the night. He's departed um, from being with the one who is the light of the world. Verses 31 through 35 uh, are the beginning of Jesus' farewell discourse. Jesus' death will be his glorification and his return to God. We love as Jesus loved. It is a self-giving love, even to the point of death. We need to be persistently living as God instructs us to do, and not as the world has corrupted us to do. This love for one another does not exclude loving others, so we don't just love other Christians. We also love those who are outside of the community of faith as well, but We are to love those who are other believers because this will ensure unity and cohesion that will allow them to be effective. And the same is true for us today. Unity is powerful and love is what allows us to remain united in heart and purpose, even when we disagree about specifics of things. Verses 36 through 38, um, Peter promises to die for Jesus. Um, They don't understand where he's going. They still don't get it. They just don't get it. They're so hard of understanding. Um, Jesus prophesies Peter's betrayal and his denial here. And that takes us through the end of John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 13.